Is that, can you hear me now? Okay. All right. Do I need to pray again, or did you hear that? <laughs> uh, so uh, today, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17. And I had planned kind of a long little bit of an introduction into the book of Jeremiah, but upon realizing how much time it was going to take, we're going to do a really uh, jet tour there about the book of Jeremiah, just to kind of set the the background and the context so you can see exactly what, I, what Jeremiah is talking about. So Jeremiah is a prophet of God. He was chosen by God. He was from the town of Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, and he was set apart by God to proclaim a message of, of repentance and wrath to Judah, and that if there was no repentance, that they would receive God's wrath because they had turned away from God to worship false idols, and God was very angry. And so then Jeremiah, then, which brings us to, so that was our quick jet tour, which brings us to Jeremiah in chapter 17. And again, to kind of try and set the background and context of the verses we're going to look at, verses 5 through 8, then we need to just briefly summarize what Jeremiah is saying in these first four verses of chapter 17. And to make it just kind of short and sweet then, God is saying that the reason for their coming judgment is idolatry. And that they made idols and then went and worshipped them rather than their God, the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And notice, too, what God's response to their idolatry is in, this, in the second half of verse 4. In Jeremiah 17, verse 4. For my anger, for in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. God is very angry. He's angry that his people have forsaken him and turned to these false idols. In fact, one commentator said that this message about God was clear, that disobedience of God's laws were going to incur punishment. And that has not changed. That same concept applies today disobey God's laws, and they will incur punishment. But not only had God's people turned away to false idols, but now they've also turned to trust in men. We read in Isaiah 30, God's condemnation against the nation of Israel and turning to Egypt for their help. And that is exactly what Jeremiah here is going to discuss about trusting in men and how angry and what an abomination that him as well, not just false idols, but to put in trust in anything other than but him, the living God who brought his people out of Egypt. And so now that brings us to our text today in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, and I will read. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So in this Passage, a passage here, God describes two paths that man can choose, either to be blessed 
or to be cursed so that you will know the consequences of each path. And so God was merciful to me in that these passages break down very easily into two easy, discernible points. One, there is the path to being cursed in verses 5 and 6, and the path to being blessed in verses 7 and 8. And notice, there are only two paths. There are only two paths you can choose. There is no in-between or middle path, implying the Lord cannot be mixed in with anyone or anything else. And, as we'll see, these two paths are going in opposite directions. So therefore, you are either with God or you are against God. There is no middle ground. The paths do not cross. They do not intersect. They're going in two totally, completely different opposite directions. Just as you cannot simultaneously go north and south or simultaneously go east and west, you cannot follow God and follow man or follow man and follow God. It is impossible. You cannot be done because ultimately they will lead to two final and separate destinations. And so this brings us then to our first path then here, starting in verse 5, the path to being cursed. The path to being cursed. And so as we read earlier then, again to be clear, we read earlier that God's anger was against idolatry, and his anger continues then against those who will trust in man. Not false gods, but those who replace their trust in God by putting their trust in man. And so it begins with, in verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, Thus says the Lord. For added emphasis here, Jeremiah writes down that this comes to remind us that this is coming directly from God. It emphasizes the divine calling of Jeremiah and his role as a prophet and what a prophet was supposed to do, that they are telling us directly God's word. They are speaking God's words. 2 Chronicles 18.13 can give us a very brief and succinct description a description of a prophet. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And that's exactly what a prophet does. He speaks the word of God. So when a prophet speaks, then it, was right, it would be right as if God was right before your very eyes and was speaking to you directly. So therefore, to disobey the words of a prophet was to directly disobey God. So thus says the Lord then should grab our immediate attention, should tell us to open up our ears and get ready to listen because something especially important is going to be said. It is similar in the New Testament when we read of Jesus. He would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, meaning, hey, Wake up, pay attention. What I'm going to say is really important. And it is. What the Lord is going to say here is very important. And so what what does the Lord say here? Continuing in verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. The first word God says is cursed. So what does it mean to be cursed? The Hebrew word that's used here that was translated as curse then means to create a ban or a barrier. It's intended to exclude someone from the benefits or to qualify someone for for misfortune, for bad things. Or it could also mean separation from God and the community of faith. 
The word has a meaning then of a sense of invocation or an appeal or urgent request of evil or injury against one's enemies. So to be cursed is a very serious thing. And this word that's used, cursed, is also the same word, Hebrew word that was used back in, in Genesis. Is the word that God used to curse the snake and the land in Genesis 3. Which reminds us that and tells us that it is only God, that God is the one, he alone can truly curse. Because it is a revelation of his justice in support of his claim and authority to absolute obedience. And so let's see then God's curse or God's justice being played out in, in Genesis here when he used it against the snake. So the snake was cursed then to go on his belly and to eat the dust of the earth, Genesis 3.14. The ground was cursed and that pain would be involved in working the land, 3.17. That thistles and thorns would now come forth from the land, Genesis 3.18. And it will be hard work to cultivate the fruits of the land, Genesis 4.19. So very simply, to be cursed by God is not a very good thing. That no good thing are going to happen. And even in the Old Testament, the curse was also then an integral part of a covenant relationship between God and the community, between God and an individual, or even among members of the community. So to break the terms of a covenant was then to merit these covenant curse or curses upon them. And we have a great example of the results of God's curses for those who break his covenant is found in the book of Deuteronomy. There in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, God gives a list of curses to Israel about what would happen if they would disobey him. And so let me just give you just a quick, brief summary of some of the afflictions God's curse will bring to the people for their disobedience in breaking their covenant with him. Verse 20. This is Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. Confusion, frustration, and death. Verse 22. Wasting disease, fever, inflammation, drought, blight, and mildew. Verse 25. Defeat by your enemies. Verse 27. Boils, tumors, scabs, and itch which cannot be healed. Verse 28. Madness, blindness, confusion of mind. And then verse 45. The result of all these curses is destruction. And I didn't, that wasn't even a comprehensive list of all the curses that God laid out for the people of Israel, of what they would do. But again, it emphasizes and reinforces the fact that curses then are totally under God's control. And it is in his power then to execute perfect judgment in response to one's actions. That if you disobey God, that there could be curses and great consequences. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. And indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so God now says, now, who is going to deserve this curse? Look again at verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. So the one being cursed is the one who trusts in man. And the key, we're going to talk about the two paths, but the key to each path is going to be the same. Whether it be cursed or being blessed, the key to each path is what does one place their trust in. In verse 5, we just read, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And then look at verse 
7. Skip down to verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So in both paths then, the key is who or what is someone trusting in. In verse 5, it is the man. Verse 7, it is the Lord. And so the one then in verse 5 that is the cursed man, to be clear then, the one who trusts in man is an unbeliever. Because this person is taking their ideas, philosophies, and religion, not from man, from man, but not from God and his word. So by trusting in man, they show that they are depending on their own good works, talents, skills, abilities, or others for their justification before God. In trusting in man, then they have rejected God. And so trust here means just as you would think it would mean, to be reliant, to have faith, to have a firm belief in the reliability, truth, strength of someone or something. Having trust relates then to having faith in something or someone. And so again, the key to this path as well as the other path is what are you trusting in? Trust. What are you believing in? What are you relying in? What are you trusting in? Or rather, who are you trusting in? And in this passage, whether you trust in man or God, your journey will be described and the consequences explained of your path, regardless of whether you trust in God or you trust in man. And for man, this is a difficult challenge because it is a natural desire and temptation for us, for all of us, to trust in man. It's easy. Why is it so easy? Because we live in this physical world, and so it's easier to trust or depend on man or self or other human resources because man and all his human resources, we can see, touch, taste, feel, experience. We live in a physical world, and so we experience everything with our physical senses. So it's easy to reach out and grab that which we can see. And so as we come into contact daily with other humans and mankind and society, we can be and we are tempted to put our trust not just in our individual people, even in ourself, self-reliance, but also institutions and organizations of man. Think of government, political parties, religion, technology, psychology, philosophy, all these things, and even Again, ourselves, self-reliance. And so it's a bit of a challenge then to not naturally put our trust in man. But God has written for us through the prophet Jeremiah that it still is a conscious, willful choice that we make to trust in man. Look again at verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength makes flesh his strength. The Hebrew word here that is translated makes means to put, place, set, or fix. So the term in this verse then to make flesh his strength means that this person who trusting his man then has thought about, considered, reckoned that to trust in man and to make flesh his strength is the correct way to live. This is not a forced choice this is a free, willful, purposeful choice, carefully considered by the individual that in order to secure righteousness, success, prosperity, 
personal fulfillment, whatever their goal might be, that the path to follow is to trust in man. But God, in his great wisdom, in the way that he has written this phrase in the Hebrew, actually kind of mocks the man and ridicules the man who would make such a choice. So let me explain here. So as we read in verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. So in this short phrase here, we see the word man mentioned twice. But in the Hebrew, it's two different terms used to describe man. So the first term where it says cursed is the man, the term for man in Hebrew that is used here has a root term meaning to be strong. It has the idea of a strong or mighty warrior because this term emphasizes strength and might. So in fact, one of the versions of the Bible that I read, in fact, it actually says, cursed is the strong man who trusts in man. And so the second term used for man is not that term. In fact, it is the term that in the providence of God, there we just, through Pastor Keith, we talked about Genesis, and God made man in his image, and he used a particular certain Hebrew word. And maybe you remember it. It has to do with the name of the man, Adam, which symbolizes then one who is made in the image of God, but who is made from the dust of the earth. And so we see then in this verse here, the strong man, the one who has to be strong and mighty, now is trusting in the man who is frail and weak and made from the dust of the earth. So does that make any sense to you? If you want to be strong and mighty, you want to think of something that's made out of dirt? So do you see the absurdity then of somebody, someone wanting to be strong and mighty to look to one who is frail and fragile, made from dirt, to receive their strength, might, and power? And this phrase helps to illustrate the tragic effects of the fall that distorts the thinking of man to turn from the creator to the creation, to their own finite thinking rather than Almighty God who has given that man life and breath. They're saying, in fact, that those that they want to depend on their own flesh for strength, that they are satisfied then with their own abilities, they do not believe that they need divine help because they would rather trust in themselves or something weaker than God. And the Bible is filled with warnings about the danger of trusting in men. In Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Or Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Or Isaiah 2.22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? But yet, despite all these warnings, many still choose to trust in man instead of God. The desire of the cursed is not is to not trust in God's strength, but rather in their own strength or the strength of other men. Because they have made that choice, as we said, verse 5 again, and makes flesh his Strength, flesh representing the physical body of the man, the meaty part plus the skin of men, muscles and bones which comprise the physical aspect of a man. 
So the strong man then desires to make his or mankind's physical strength or human resources what he trusts in. In fact, the Hebrew term used for strength actually means arm, power, or strength. So he's looking to use his arm rather than God's arm. Because God's strength is also described as coming from his arm. A few chapters later, Jeremiah 21, he writes, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And Job 40, verse 9, Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And so the problem then is that man's flesh is perishable, sinful, weak, and mortal, as contrasted to the strength and arm of God. So then what the man is trusting in is rather his own strength, his arm, versus God's arm. His thinking is that he would rather trust and believe in the flesh of man and his strength, believing that the flesh and the strength of man can do what the arm of God cannot do. And so if you wanted to choose between who you wanted to trust in man for man or God for strength, let me just make a real quick comparison. Man is finite, God is infinite. Man is temporary, God is eternal. Man lacks wisdom, God is wisdom. Man is dependent, God is independent. He needs nothing. Man is the creation, and God is the creator. And so even, even God, in the book of Job, God took Job to the woodshed when he reminded Job of his mighty power in, ver- in Job 38. In verse 4 he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Or verses 34 and 35, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are? And of course, the answer to each each rhetorical question is a resounding no, he cannot, and neither can any of us, neither can any man. And so it is a bad decision to choose to trust in man, a much weaker source of strength. But even more dangerous than that is that the one who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength also turns away from God. Read the final part of verse 5, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And so as I said, with these two paths, it makes sense. If you turn towards one thing, then you must naturally turn away from something else. And in this case, you're turning to man and turning away from God. And that is one of God's complaints against Judah. We read Isaiah earlier, trusting in man. And there's a good biblical illustration of what happens to one who turns and trusts in man instead of God. And the consequences of that decision of trusting in man and not God in the story of King Ahaz. In, so we're going to do a little Bible exercise here. Keep your finger in Jeremiah chapter 17 and turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles in chapter 28. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a brief background here. So King, King Ahaz, he would rule Judah. This is before Jeremiah's time. But during his reign, Judah was under pressure from the Assyrians and also the nation of Israel. So this was before we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you recall in the Bible, sometimes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, they would 
struggle and fight against each other. And this was one of those times. And the king then was under stress then from the Assyrians and the nation of Israel. And so now King Ahaz made the terrible error then of looking to men, in this particular case of Assyria, for help instead of to his God. So in uh, 28, verse 16, 2 Chronicles 28, verse 16, we see that. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. So he did not look to God. He looked to an army, to a nation, to greater strength of man. And look at the Lord's response in verses 19 and 20. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening. So the king goes to Assyria thinking he's going to be strengthened, but the exact opposite happens. He gets weakened. He gets afflicted. And so what is the result of this from the one that he is supposed to get help from? The result in verse 21. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Syria, but it did not help him. So now not only was he thought he was going to get help, he's afflicted, and now he's impoverishing the nation of Israel, giving them their gold and silver to get him from afflicting him. But now it gets even worse because the king had turned to Assyria. He had turned toward man and his heart had turned away from the Lord. And we see that in verses 22 and 23. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But... They were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And so in this short story, it illustrates how the progression of turning further and further from the Lord results in greater consequences. King Ahaz here gives God the cold shoulder, first by turning to men, to the Syria, and then eventually this led into full-blown idolatry, which led to his ruin and to the ruin of Israel. Which now sets the stage for us to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 6. And we'll see that is exactly what God is going to say is going to happen and that trusting in man will lead to greater and greater consequences eventually ending in ruin. Look at verse 6. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And so in verse 6, we observe that each description of the environment is harsher than the preceding one to warn you that the one who trusts in man, their life will get worse. And primarily, this is speaking about their inward spiritual condition, not necessarily their outward prosperity, but their inward spiritual condition. As I think we can all probably think, even now, as we sit by several prosperous, powerful people who live on the face of this earth today, who continue to gain worldly wealth, but yet they are God-haters, and yet they seem to be prospered. And it was, a, it was a problem, it was a question that even the prophets had in the Bible, littered with the prophets asking God, 
Oh God, why do the wicked seem to prosper so? But the problem is we're not seeing the spiritual aspect of their consequences for them. Because it's described this spiritual environment that I've reaped for their souls. And so first we see then in verse 6 that he is like a shrub in the desert. So this literally, many commentators think this is a reference to the juniper bush that was in the desert there in the area that they were in. But also too, interestingly enough, this word used for shrub can also mean naked or destitute, barren and unproductive. The idea here is that a shrub in the desert is like one stripped naked who then has no protection against the sun and the heat of the desert. And a shrub in the desert then is greatly affected by external conditions since the source of its strength is constantly changing. If you live out in the desert, you are reliant upon water. And if you don't get water, you're in trouble. And so the implication then is that the shrub in the desert must then use all its resources to struggle to survive. But yet even during its struggle then, it seems to have the appearance of burying some life. But since all its resources are used to survive, then it bears no fruit. And eventually, depending on the environment, the life of the shrub is going to dry up when the heat comes. And second to another aspect of the shrub, the one who is like a shrub, the cursed man, is they will not recognize God's goodness when it comes. Continuing, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. The individual has placed his confidence in human endeavor, strength, and wisdom will miss out on the blessing God will provide. For the blessings from man will pale in comparison to what God could provide for them. It is like being thankful for a cup of water from man when God could provide you an ocean of water there in the desert. And in fact, one commentator goes much further. He explained this phrase as meaning, the cursed man does not see good when it comes because he will be dead. And that's a very real and true possibility. And so it moves us now to our final description of the spiritual environment that they have reaped in verse 6. That he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. The cursed man in his inner life is always lonely and always spiritually thirsty. As a desert is a means, as a desert means a lack of water for one's physical thirst. So a lack of the word of God will leave one spiritually thirsty. And to compound this misery, the representation of the inhabited salt land represents a place that is desolate, lonely, brutal, frustrating, aggravating, and worst of all, hopeless, and then death. And with no one to ask for help in that uninhabited salt, lane, salt land and surrounded by salt in which nothing can live, indeed, not only the shrub, but that person is truly cursed. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Psalm 119, 155. And so here laid out then is the path to being cursed. In some ways it's simple. Trust in man and turn away from God. And these two verses can very easily be summarized by what Jeremiah wrote earlier in chapter 2, in verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so this person who trusts in man cuts themselves off from God by sin and unbelief, by turning to man and away from God. Therefore, in essence, the cursed man is saying that he would rather die of thirst in the salt land than to turn to God. But however, it is not all doom and gloom. There's more. And if I can use, borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, and I will show you still a more excellent way, which now brings us to point two, the path to being blessed. The path to being blessed. Beginning in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So the opposite of being cursed, then, is being blessed. Verse 7 explains, then, to be blessed, your trust must be in the Lord. Once more again, highlighting the key to the path, then, is trust. And in fact, it's emphasized, reinforced, highlighted, bolded, that it is trust, because trust is written twice, twice in this verse. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Trust is the key. And those who trust in the Lord then are blessed. Blessed refers to then a bestowal of benefits or favor, most often from God. As such, the term blessed then is the opposite of cursed. Blessed then also, in order to be blessed then, presupposes a favorable relationship between God and the person or persons being blessed. And because of this relationship, the blessed person will receive good things from God. And the construction, too, of verse 7 is similar to the construction of verse 5 with the use of the term for man. In verse 5, we said, cursed is the man, meaning strong man. Verse 7 uses the same construction and says the same thing. It also could read, blessed is the strong man. Only this time, notice the object of trust has changed. It's no longer Adam, the one made from dust, but it's the Lord, the Lord God, almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. So the Lord is saying that, yes, indeed, it is possible to be a strong man, but only in one way, through me the Lord. And as the other path described, the path of the one who trusts in man as an unbeliever, this describes the path of the born-again believer, the Christian. He's not trusting in man, but he's trusting in the Lord for all his righteousness and all that he needs. And for, those, for the one who takes this path, who trusts in the Lord then, Jeremiah shares with us now the blessings that we received from trusting in the Lord. And we'll see four blessings that are described here in verse 8. Verse 8, He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The four blessings we see are going to see nourishment, stability, comfort, and fruitfulness. And so now we're going to look at each blessing here in a little bit more detail for those who trust in the Lord. The first one is nourishment. Nourishment. In the beginning of verse 8, he is like a tree planted by water. This should be reminiscent of Psalm 1, which was read earlier. In verse 3, it reads, 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So there is a parallel between Jeremiah here and Psalm 1. The only difference between Psalm 1 and here, Jeremiah 17, is just trust. In Psalm 1, the trust is dedicated to the word of God, whereas Jeremiah's is trust in God. And in many ways, the two are the same. And so now, unlike the shrub, which seems to be haphazardly placed in the desert near or next to nothing in the harsh conditions of the desert, the one who trusts in the Lord then desires to be near the source of nourishment, the water. This person recognizes that they are not able to survive or thrive on their own. They need, they realize they need an external source to strengthen, feed, and nourish their souls. They choose then to seek, follow, and trust in the source of this living water, which is the Lord. And Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John 4.14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So it is the Lord that is the supplier of all the nourishment, that he is a never-ending fountain of life that will never run dry. And so the first blessing is nourishment. The second one is stability. Stability. And that is in the next part of verse 8. That sends out its roots by the stream. So another big difference between the shrub and the tree is that unlike the shrub, which had a very superficial kind of root system, the tree had developed a deep root system that can reach a perennial supply of water. Water that is constantly flowing, which the roots can continually draw water from to promote life and health. And in this, it is this water that transforms, sustains, and grows the tree. And it is the living water that transforms and sustains and grows the Christian. So Christian, have you sent out your roots to the water by growing in the knowledge of God and understanding the deeper truths of the word of God? Have you sent your roots out to read the Bible, to pray, to pursue and participate in the means of grace, to be stabilized and nourished? Because there is a constant supply of water that the Lord gives and that supply of water shall never, ever cease. The blessed man will be constantly refreshed by straining their roots toward the unending supply of the living water of God's grace and provisions. Yet, as good as those are, Jeremiah reminds his readers then that even a well-planted and well-watered tree is not immune from difficulties and hardships. Which brings us to the third blessing of those who trust in the Lord is comfort. In the next part of the verse, and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green. So I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, to be the bearer of bad news, but being a Christian and trusting in the Lord does not make one immune from trials, hardships, and difficulties. Just as the tree, though is planted in a great spot, is not immune from heat and drought and other things. Because the heat and drought there, for us, symbolizes then hardships, difficulties, and trials. So they are still going to come. Just as the tree will experience the heat, so we also will experience trials and difficulties. So the blessing then is not that we are immune from trials, struggles, and difficulties. The blessing is that 
as God has told us, there's no need to fear when they do come. Why? Because you are adequately equipped to overcome them. Just as the tree is supplied with adequate water to overcome the heat, so is the Christian then adequately supplied to overcome and remain safe, as evidenced here by the fact that the trees, these remain green. Don't forget that detail in there that he wrote, for its leaves remain green. So the heat does not affect the tree to the extent that its leaves turn color, but remain green, symbolizing the tree remains healthy. So also, too, Christian, who are, who are trusting in the Lord, you will remain healthy as well because your roots are partaking of the living water, that you will remain safe and healthy despite the difficulties and trials. You will survive. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. God's word is amazing. And so, there's three of the four blessings. Nourishment, stability, and comfort. And the fourth blessing only gets better. Not only will you be kept safe, but you will continue to thrive under the hand of the Lord. And that's the fourth and final blessing. Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. In the last part of verse 8. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. For the one who trusts in the Lord, they will continue to bear fruit. Even in the midst of a drought, even in especially hard times, there is no need, as it says, to anxious, to be anxious or to worry, because you are rooted and grounded in the Lord. Unlike the shrub in the desert, it will dry up and wither away because there is no source of water to sustain it. But for the tree, there will be no lack of water or nutrients for it because it is planted near water and has an adequate root system. And so also then, the Christian is like that tree. That there is no need to be anxious because the source to sustain the Christian then is not a human source, not yourself, or someone else, or something else, but a divine source, God Almighty himself, the one that will never run dry or empty. And so then, unlike the shrub in the desert that is affected by the external environment, the tree will not only be relatively unaffected, but, but continue to thrive because the source of its strength never changes. The blessed man who trusts in God because he has access to spiritual resources that will not fail him. Isaiah wonderfully described that for us in chapter 58, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And so now I'd like to, as we went to Second Chronicles, to illustrate, have a biblical illustration of what it's like to trust in man and the consequences. Now I'd like to turn back to Second Chronicles to give a good biblical illustration of what happens when someone does put their trust in the Lord. So back to Second Chronicles in chapter 14. Here we have another king, the king of Judah, King Asa who, uh, 2 Chronicles 14, starting in verse 8. We're introduced to this story about the king in that we're told he has a combined army of 580,000 men, 300,000 men from Judah and 280,000 men from Benjamin. 
I think we could all agree, 580,000 men, that's a pretty big army. That's a pretty powerful army. But there is a problem. There is a big challenge to the king and to Israel. In verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marashah. So you don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure out that a million is a lot bigger than 580,000 men, that the army and the king were going to be in big trouble because they had, as it says, they drew up in battle there in Marashah in verse 10. And so now King Asa has a choice. What is he going to do? What is he going to put his trust in? And he turns to the Lord for help. He doesn't turn to other nations or to other men. He doesn't turn to gold and silver, but he turns and puts his trust in the Lord. Look at verse 11. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man, let not man prevail against you. His prayer then reflects his complete Absolute trust in the Lord. And what are the results? They're in verse 12 and 13. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil. So this army of 580,000 totally wiped out 1 million men. And so we see what a difference in the results between one king, Ahaz, and another king, King Asa. There was a great defeat for the one king, and there was a great victory for the other. And the difference was, the difference was who they trusted, who was their source of trust. Ahaz put his trust in men, and Asa put his trust in God. King Asa's roots were planted by water and was strengthened by God. He did not fear or become anxious, but trusted in God. And for the one who trusts in God, indeed, is the same for all of us. We have this never-ending stream of blessings from an eternal God whose well will never run dry. And that is great news. And I need just a few more minutes. But there is one problem, however, because... Man's natural inclination is to choose the first path, the path of cursing. We, are, we have sinned against God. We are in a fallen world. We have a fallen nature. And in that natural state, being separated from God, we live in disobedience and rebellion against God. That we then do not naturally want to submit to God, but we would rather live independently and be the ruler of our own life in our own strength, in our own power, or others, or other means, no matter the cost, even unto death. For there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And the cursed man wants to do what is right in his own eyes and thinks nothing of his own soul and their final eternal address. As Jeremiah explained, this path leads to isolation, hopelessness, agony, and torment. The cursed man, the one who trusts in man, will guide himself along the path that will lead to an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's, it's even harder to get off that path because the danger of this world is that it's designed 
exactly to keep one's heart toward that path and towards that world and away from God. I hope that we all saw that Jeremiah made it very clear in this passage that you cannot follow both. So if you are trusting then in flesh and man to be your strength and following the path to be cursed, I'm here to give you good news, that there is a way to change paths. There is a way to be led from the path of cursing to the path of blessing. And that one and only way is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was only the Lord Jesus Christ who became a curse for you so that you wouldn't have to be cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 That on the cross, Jesus dwelt in the parched wilderness. That Jesus was in that an uninhabited salt land as the sin of man was placed upon him. And the Father forsook him and poured his wrath upon him until it was completed. And then Jesus gave up his spirit and died on the cross. That his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead opened the path of blessing to everyone. The path, that path of blessing is open to you even right now, cursed man. And it is received through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection for the payment of your sins. And that God is gracious and merciful to open that path for you. Romans 8.32, For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? If you are that cursed man or woman, trusting in man and not the Lord, then now I urge you to acknowledge your sins and that you're walking on the wrong path and ask the Lord for, your, for forgiveness of your sins and to set you on that path of blessing. And brother and sister in Christ, Remain on the path of blessing, daily trusting in the Lord. Remembering that a race is not a sprint, that it is a marathon. A battle until the day the Lord brings you home. There will be heat and there will be drought. But may you be encouraged by the words of Paul in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you are taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so in this text in Jeremiah 17, we have studied then the two paths, one to be cursed and one to be blessed. And if I may use and modify the words of Moses in which he gave the Israelites in Deuteronomy 11, see, I am setting before you today a path of blessing and a path of cursing. Which path will you follow? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words and your truth that you have given us to graciously warn us of the path that we are so tempted and desirous to take and the great danger in following that path. And now we thank you, Lord, of your words to encourage us of this great path of blessing that you have set aside for us, but it can only be reached through Christ. And we thank you, Father, that you made a way through Jesus Christ, to be able to enter that path of blessing, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that these words would convict us, would strengthen us, would encourage us and help us as we walk, I pray, not on the path of cursing, 
but in the path of blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.